Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Dear Louise series, where I have the joy of conversing with extraordinary individuals living with spinal cord injury, who both embrace and defy their physical limitations as entrepreneurs, trailblazers, tastemakers, and innovators. Join us as we explore what is possible in spinal cord injury. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Our next guest is Leanne Taylor. Her story extends far beyond the realms of spinal cord injury and sports. It's a narrative woven intricately with threads of resilience and hope while battling mental health challenges and discovering the light in the darkest of moments. Leanne's resilience in the face of adversity teaches us the transformative power of determination. And that raw determination by itself is not enough for the longer journey of living fully. Leanne has emerged from her spinal cord injury as a beacon of change, a fervent advocate for diversity and inclusion in the professional landscape, championing equal opportunities, advocating for the voices often unheard, and breaking barriers to pave the way for all to thrive, not just spinal cord injured. Her approach to diversity in the workplace might surprise you. Stay tuned. In 2018, in a bicycle accident, Leanne Taylor was left paralyzed from the waist down. However, instead of succumbing to despair, she made a bold decision while in the hospital to become a para-triathlete. Just eight months after her injury, she completed her first para-triathlon showcasing adaptability, resilience, and peak performance. Leanne's story extends beyond sports. It's a journey through mental health challenges, finding hope, and building a fulfilling life. She's a staunch advocate for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, promoting equal opportunities for all. Leanne also champions body image and self-love, inspiring others to embrace their uniqueness. Welcome, Leanne. Hi there, so excited to chat with you today. Well, I am blessed to introduce you to our listeners. I'm excited as well. And here you are, a young woman living with spinal cord injury and a determined woman. I'm wondering if you could give us a glimpse about what goes on on the inside of Leanne Taylor. What makes you tick? 
that's an interesting question to answer. I think after I was injured, one of the really big focuses for me when I was in the hospital, one of the things that really was different for me is that often I found that people would come into my room and would feel really sad to see me. And obviously they were just sad because of what had happened to me, but it was a real hesitation of mine that I didn't want my life to become this negative and sad story. Mm -hmm. And so one of the decisions I made when I was in the hospital was that I wanted to make a life for myself post-injury that was so good that if I had the chance, I wouldn't go back to prior to my injury and that I wouldn't want to sacrifice the life I'd built for the ability to walk again. And obviously at first that didn't happen. That was a tall order. And, and at first I thought about going back all the time. And I thought about what my life was like before all the time. But I've been injured now for five years, been living with a spinal cord injury for five years. And I can honestly say that I've built a life after injury that I'm so content with and so happy with and includes so many of the things that are important to me that I wouldn't go back and I wouldn't want to undo it. And so I feel like when I talk about, you know, what makes me tick, what am I sort of doing with my life? I think it's all about finding joy and and finding those things that make me want to get up in the morning and that are worth putting in the effort. Because living with a spinal cord injury or any disability is hard and complicated and there's challenges. And I think for me, my focus is just finding those things that that bring me energy and make me want to keep doing it. Mm-mm. Gosh, I just love that. And you just gave us so much. Maybe we could just unpack a couple pieces of that that are really intriguing to me because you touch on in the hospital with those who were sad, the impact that their sadness had on you to have you really reach for joy. And the decision that you made while in the hospital to actually not long for the life that you had, but build the new life that you were going to have that was even better. That's extraordinary. Where did that, I don't know, that moxie, that belief, where did that come from, from within? I think you very rarely in life, because we're all so busy, get the opportunity to turn around and and look at kind of the whole thing, like your whole life and say, what am I doing here? And when I was injured, it it felt like that. Everything that I had been doing was paused. Like my work, I didn't know what was going to happen there. Or like I was training to do some small kind of community running races and, and that was off the table. And so when everything changes and you have that opportunity to look back and say, you know, what am I really doing here? I think mm. that was where that came from is that I just wanted to build a life that I was proud of and that felt authentic and that I felt like I was, you know, being myself And I think that's how all of the different pieces, sport and other things kind of came back in because I realized these are the things that matter to me and that make me feel like the best version of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I really marvel at that sort of that paradox of having everything in your life completely slowed down as it relates to movement. And in that pause, all these insights that emerge you know, the, who is the authentic me and how do I want to live? And you also um, really tee up for us what I know is a big debate in some ways and lifestyle choice in another in the spinal cord injury community, which is that do you sacrifice everything for the ability to walk again with that being the goal 
or do you live in the now and and build a life of authenticity that's even better than than the old life whether you are walking again or not yeah that's such an interesting question and i suppose i think everyone has a unique take on it or kind of a unique story as to how they came to the position that they have on it mm-hmm. and so for myself my fiance actually now fiance, but at the mm-hmm. time boyfriend, um, had just <laughs> Best finished- Best wishes uh, to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Had just finished his PhD in regenerative medicine and spinal cord injury two months before I was injured. Get out. Yeah. It's really strange. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I know. It, it's, a, it's a strange sort of coincidence. And so it gave us kind of a unique perspective in some ways on spinal cord injury. And so one of the things- when we had to kind of make that decision, when we were in the hospital, we had discussed whether or not to go to a focused um, kind of recovery center with the main purpose being to have some functional gains, you know, so to regain kind of physical capabilities, like in specifically being able to like move parts of my body below my injury. And so obviously there is a time and financial expense associated with that. And we had to kind of make that decision. Do we do this or do we not? And so what we had kind of done is looked at it and said, it would be hard to move on with a regular life, not feeling like we pursued this to some extent. And so we said we were going to go there for one month. And if we didn't have any functional gain, if I didn't you know, move any part of my body that I couldn't before, we were going to just totally put it to bed and say, like, that's it. Here's where I am. And maybe we'll reevaluate in the future if science changes or if you know what's available changes. But for right now, we'll leave that and just move on with our lives in whatever way we can. And I felt like having both of those pieces was so important to me, exploring it to some extent and kind of fighting that battle, but then also knowing when to hang up my gloves and say, okay, here's what I have. And I can still have an incredible life with this ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to say for the inner wisdom of knowing what we need to do so we're not plagued by the woulda, coulda, shouldas. And together, you and he made this decision. We're going we're gonna to give it a, a good solid month. So what happened? I did not regain function in terms of like my level of injury is the same. And I can't control any parts of my body that I couldn't before. But I think slowly over the month, we started to kind of change what the focus of the program was. And so I went into the program, not being able to transfer from the floor into my wheelchair independently. And I came out of it being able to do that, Mm. which seems like a small thing. But for myself, I wanted to pursue paratriathlon. So I wanted to be able to go to the pool and go swimming by myself. But I couldn't do it if I couldn't get up off the floor. And so all of these little pieces that I think we kind of learned and found on the way became really instrumental parts in my athletic career. And so... It's interesting because like, did we accomplish anything there kind of in, in, in terms of what they were trying to accomplish? I mean, maybe no. But in a lot of ways, I think it was a really important first step for us to put certain things to bed and then also to gain these skills that I could actually use in my life in the way that it was going to look now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me as an able-bodied person, it's just so inspirational to know these seemingly incremental steps can actually be complete game changers uh, for quality of life and how important they are, even though, you know, the big carrot, you know, walking again, biking again, running again, whatever it is, might not come to pass. But goodness gracious, are these, there are these milestones that are really gigantic. Yeah. 
Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. You know, I'm wondering as a as a young woman and those who can't see you in the way I can, um, if you might share with us back in 2018, like how old you were and what happened with that injury, if you're if you're willing. Sure, yeah. I was injured in a cycling accident in 2018. So I would have been 25. I turned 26 in the hospital. And at the time I was living with my boyfriend, we had just moved in together and we had started to take up mountain biking. I'd always ridden bikes and that's always been kind of part of my life. And I did a bit of triathlon uh, prior to my injury. And so felt very comfortable kind of in that space. And we were riding our mountain bikes in a place that was very close to our house. We could bike there from our house. It was like 10 minutes away and we went there all the time. And I was biking downhill and for whatever reason, felt like I was going a bit too fast and made the classic incorrect braking decision and went over the handlebars um, on my bike. And at the time, I remember like I was laying on the floor and I was conscious and, and other than my back being broken, everything else was fine. And so there's actually a physician who was biking by, a family doctor, and he had stopped and came over to help me. And he was hesitant to call 911 because he couldn't quite put together how such a low impact looking collision would result in something so severe. And so ultimately, of course, he did. And then my partner, Scott, kind of biked back down the trail to where I was. And I was taken in an ambulance to Health Sciences Center where they did a Hold on, hold on. Pause, pause. Before the fusion... (laughs) <laughs> so so here you are, you're handbraking, you go over the handlebars, you're lying on the ground. Uh, there's something that even a physician says, you know, this might not look as serious or it doesn't look too serious. What was it like for you? I mean, I think I knew something was wrong. And I think in some ways, this is such a blessing that I had some understanding of spinal cord injuries. And at that point, I think I felt very conflicted in my head with almost like you imagine like the little angel and devil on your shoulders on one side kind of saying like, don't be so dramatic. This is going to be really embarrassing if you like cause this big scene and you're fine. And then the other side saying like, this is not fine. I'm not fine. Mm. And so I think I, I felt sort of my reaction, I think, fell somewhere in between of being like, hey, I'd really like you to call an ambulance, but also I'm not going to allow myself to go into like, full freak out here because, I mean, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just that um, incredible sense of how we are seen in the eyes of others, you know, image still holding us together versus this reality check of this might be really, really serious with those two little, yeah, battling angels. I'm thinking of, you know, Belushi and Animal House. Right. Do I freak out? Do I do I say this is really uh, serious? What will it be? So all that's happening in your head. And um, with this background that you had, sounds like vicariously from your boyfriend studying at the time about spinal cord injury really came into play. It was somewhere in the forefront of your thinking. Yeah, exactly. I think if I knew absolutely nothing about that and that wasn't on my radar, I think in some ways it would have been more difficult to process and to understand. Like I think when you see spinal cord injuries sort of portrayed in movies, and I think this is a lot of people's experience, they have to be told that they'll never walk again and perhaps they don't believe it or they struggle to, I mean, everyone struggles to digest that, but they're sort of surprised to be told. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, 
like kind of the moment that I landed and took stock of what was going on and that I couldn't move my legs or feel them, that was in my head as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so I remember it was like a resident physician, poor guy, who had to tell me the kind of, you know, the status of, of my reality that I probably wouldn't walk again and that I had a spinal cord injury. And I remember him sort of reacting like he thought I didn't understand it, like saying it many times and and trying to sort of explain it to me. And I'm like, I hear you, but I don't feel like this exact instant needing to have a really dramatic reaction because I've been processing this for hours. Like I knew that this conversation was quite likely. So I think they thought that I didn't understand, but in reality, my brain had been chewing on it for quite some time by the time someone had told me that for the first time. Wow, yeah. Yeah, chewing on it for a long time. So you actually appeared calm uh, because it wasn't new information for you. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. I'm also just thinking about that statement that so many spinal cord injured people or their loved ones, if they happen to uh, not be cognizant at the moment, are told you know, that you'll never, or your loved one will never walk again. And, you know, maybe, and also maybe not, uh, another piece of it. I'm wondering if, does that figure in for you at all with the background in regenerative medicine that your boyfriend had of, of knowing what was possible? Or was that something that you didn't know you about yet? Right. That's a good point. So one of the things that we sort of came to understand is that with what was currently available, there wasn't anything, we kind of looked at the research of what's currently available and felt that there wasn't anything that we were willing to do at the time uh, that would result in recovery for me. So I know that there's some strong evidence or maybe promise from what stem cells might be able to offer or spinal stimulators and different kinds of treatments. But at the time, and granted this was five years ago, and we haven't been absolutely, you know, finger on the pulse with the research. So maybe there is more now that's that's safer and more accessible or more, you know, maybe we would choose it. But at the time, there wasn't anything that we felt like the risk would outweigh the potential benefit. And so we were able to say, you know, at this time, there's no treatment that that I would pursue based on the risk and and what I'm comfortable with. But one of the surgeons who did my surgery, actually, when he came in and talked to me after my surgery, he had said that he thinks that there will be something in my lifetime that would seriously change. I I mean, I don't know that it's specifically walk again, because I don't know that anyone knows exactly what that's going to look like. But I think that he had said that he believes that there'll be functional gains in my lifetime for people with spinal cord injuries. So I think it's nice to have that hope And at the same time, I think it's really important for people to be comfortable with where they're at. So that if that becomes available, that's great. But I don't want to be spending my life hoping for something that that may or may not happen. It's just too much of a risk. Yeah, such a huge decision that so many able-bodied people might not fully appreciate for someone who is spinal cord injured around your next steps relative to the research or the trials, you know, what's possible when so many of them are in the trial stage? And what if you were to, because there's always the risk of losing some of your movement with those and the time it takes in your life, a big, big, big decision. I'm very familiar with that decision because of what our son Archer faced as well. And he was very interested in pursuing 
his education and his artistry and walking was just like for you as always held out there as in my lifetime. But he he too chose, looked at the risks and versus the benefits and came up with a different approach for himself. And so it's a very unique but major decision because there are a number of spinal cord injured people whom we both know who have made the decision to go all in. And it's exciting, you know, what is happening for some of them. It's very illuminating for all of us as they are trailblazers, you know, in the research for us and um, and in the rehabilitative medicine field. But here you are choosing to try it and then finding that you made these important monumental gains, but not the walking. And yet you still completed your first paratriathlon just eight months after your injury. How did you do that, girl? How did you do that? <laughs> Good question. I think it's so funny to think back on now because now that I'm, I'm comfortable with triathlons, it's funny to put myself in the position that I was in for my first one. So I had worked with the national team's coach actually for paratriathlon just because there's not a whole lot in terms of development for the sport and and at the national level, they're really just trying to grow the sport in whatever way they can. And so I had spoken with the coach and she had seen the little bits of training that I'd been kind of making up for myself. And she offered me this opportunity to go to Florida for a race um, and get classified there. And so in Parasport, you have to be, uh, your function has to be sort of evaluated and then they put you in a group to compete with people with a similar physical ability to you. And that's called classification. So I get, had this opportunity to go to Florida, get classified. And she was kind of like, you know, you could do the race if you're comfortable or if you're not, it's okay. Like just, just come and we'll see. And I think she knew well that I was going to do the race. <laughs> and I think that she had picked up on that as a, as a great approach to make a person feel comfortable. You know, it could go either way. But she, I think if you'd asked her, like, is this person going to race? She would have probably said yes. And so I went there with this kind of mentality of just wanting to finish and not really embarrass myself. And that was kind of it. <laughs> and I did finish. And I remember kind of the point where I realized that I would. So by the time I had done 750 meter swim and then a 20K on the bike, and I got to the run portion, which I do in a racing wheelchair, I was like, I'm going to finish this thing. Like, here we go. <laughs> And they feel I'm like joining you like, right now in the excitement <laughs> of what that must have been like. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Like I think I think that was still, you know, my favorite run of all time, being like, I'm gonna do it. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And uh it's really been nonstop from there. I've just loved doing it and and that's kind of my main passion in life right now. I love that that woman who was doing the classification. I really put the decision right back in your lap. You know, you don't have to do this, right? Do you want to do this? Um, and it could have gone either way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I think once you're in the environment of paratriathlon, it's so incredible. Like just to see the other athletes and it's a sport that is done with people of really different impairments. So some athletes are visually impaired and some athletes have amputations and you see this kind of hodgepodge of abilities uh, all in one place and they're all like about to line up and do a triathlon. And I feel like anyone who spends a minute in that environment, they could do just about anything. They're just like, oh yeah, let's go. <laughs> oh, let's slow that down and paint that picture for our listeners. So, sure. you know, you've got that starting line 
And <laughs> it, everybody's starting at the same time, but because you've been classified, you will be competing, if you will, with yourself, but others with similar, what would you call them, similar disabilities or similar limitations? How do they, what's the languaging around that? Yeah, I think either is fine. I would, I would maybe say disabilities, but I think whichever is fine. The way it works is actually so a paratriathlon, all of the different classes um, compete on the same day, but there's different start waves. And so you're only racing people with your sort of group of impairments. And so I race athletes who do the race in a, in a wheelchair. So they do the bike and hand cycle, they do the run in a racing wheelchair. And then there's actually two different starts within that class based on if some people have function in their legs or not. And so my group starts first and then another group of athletes who are going to do the race in wheelchairs will start three minutes afterward. And then whoever crosses the finish line first in our wave wins that group. And then there's a different wave for athletes with different impairments. So there's a visually impaired class, which ranges from athletes who are completely blind to athletes with more minor visual impairments. And they do a similar thing. They start at the same time, but there's different waves depending on their level of impairment. And then there's a series of standing classes as well, which is athletes with amputations and and strength limitations as well. Wow. So it's just one big wave after wave after wave of extraordinary people. Yeah. (laughs) You don't often get the chance to stop and think of it that way when you're in it, but absolutely, I think that is well described. Well, you said that they inspire you. And how is it that they all inspire you? I think every athlete story in that entire race could just be the most incredible book and dive into so much to learn from all the different people. And it's funny because very often I think they don't realize that about themselves at all. Yeah. And so I had an opportunity recently to train with one of my competitors and she's just telling me kind of casual little things about what it was like for her growing up. She has spina bifida and she's just talking about, you know, these memories she has of being a kid and just kind of, she was telling me about her sisters, what her sisters were like, but obviously her uh, disability is woven into the story. And as you start to see all these offered all these times that your competitors and friends in the sport had to be so brave and had to learn so much and had to grow so much and face things that a typical person, maybe without an impairment, just couldn't really imagine or hasn't really had that experience. It's so unique and so encouraging. And it makes you feel like in this space, however you come is okay. Yeah. It is really, really accepting, isn't it? And celebrating the uniqueness of each person because each one of those stories is uh, such a triumph. Exactly. And I think it, one, of the, one of my favorite aspects of it is just the sense of humor that, that comes along with that, that I think people, I don't know, it, it would not be typical that if I fell out of my wheelchair in public, people would laugh. <laughs> and I completely understand why that's not the typical response. But at the same time, it is so refreshing to be around people who would laugh because they're like, ah, yeah, I did that last week. You know, these these yeah. things happen and these problems are normal. Yeah, I love that. And I'm just kind of drawing a nexus back to when you first started, you know, that image piece and how that has changed so much for you, it sounds like. You know, I fall out of my wheelchair. This is actually humorous because somebody else understands how ridiculous that was when I just did that. Um, or how easy it was that I just did that because I thought, you know, I had this other safeguard or person or whatever the reason, right? 
We know that. But to have that experience now where you're just showing up and it's all okay. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the really nice and unique things about Parasport. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, I'm I'm thinking too about Blink of an Eye. We just love like highlighting you and other spinal cord injured people because of their heroism in living and forging on and the positive aspects of their life, the innovative aspects of their life. I know that that you have been an innovator in your life because you have been willing to share publicly. I don't know if you're if you're willing to delve a little deeper into the innovation that you've come across because of your dives into mental health aspects that you had to face. Can we talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Willing? Okay, cool. Because I think it's not unique to the human race that mental health challenges, we can all come up against them. But when you have serious physical challenges, um, then coupled with mental health challenges, it's a, it's a double, sometimes maybe a double pop. Let's talk about that. Where do you want to start with it? We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. I think one of the really influential aspects in my journey was actually that when I was looking to buy a hand cycle for myself so I could compete in paratriathlon, a former rower for Team Canada, Silken Laumann, offered to actually donate that piece of equipment for me. And in her experience, we had an opportunity to chat and talk about our experiences. And she was training for the Olympics when she got and was very likely 
to win at the games. Mm. And she was in a, an accident with another boat where she sustained a really serious injury. And I think most people who were aware of it thought that she wouldn't compete and that maybe she wouldn't walk. And they at one point thought they were going to have to amputate and she really had a ton to go through. And I remember her talking to me about when she was sitting in the hospital and just not really understanding where it came from, but having this resolve that she was like, no, I'm going to the games and that's it. And I'm going to figure it out. And here we are. And she spoke to me uh, when I was injured or after I was injured and said that she felt very connected to that story of, of what comes, that feeling that comes when you have such a life-changing accident, but you're, you're like, no, this is not the end of my story. Or this is not, I'm not letting this be a tragedy. I'm going to keep fighting for whatever it is that I can do. And so she went on to win a bronze medal in, in those games and then have a really successful career and now support other athletes. And so I feel that having that opportunity to knit those stories together and get feedback from people who've really experienced something like that was really helpful to me. She went on to be a significant mental health advocate. And one of the things that she always says to me is to take time to process the trauma, which I think for people like she and I is difficult because you hit the ground running and you want to keep moving forward and pushing forward and accomplishing more and and getting your life back. But I think also taking the time to recognize that you have gone through a significant trauma and that there is a lot to unpack there. Having someone to remind you of that, I think is always helpful. Yeah, gosh, what a, what a wonderful friend, mentor, and just the experience of what can be so relational when we share stories and those stories get knit together. I think of it as creating an energy field for our our personal growth, right? And of course, our emotional and mental healing. And she was so wise how we need to take time to process the trauma, just like it takes time for our bodies to physically heal. Trauma meanders its way through our bodies and it needs time to be metabolized so it doesn't get stuck in our organs and in our tissues and causing us disease and headaches and gastrointestinal issues and all kinds of things as we move forward because we were not able to metabolize and or take the time. You're so right and your mentor friend was so wise. Has that been a truism for you in your life, this taking the time to process the trauma? Yeah, yeah, I really think so. And I think you do it in such, for myself, you do it in such little pieces. You kind of grieve one tiny thing at a time. Until I think at first, you know, anytime I would see something that wasn't accessible and I would feel like, oh, I can't go there. I'm frustrated. Or anytime you would see my sister playing volleyball and I couldn't anymore, I would be frustrated and that would be hard. And I think you grieve all of these little pieces until eventually over time you get to a place where now I find it rare that there's something in the world that's a big trigger for me. Not never, but I think over time, it becomes less and less until you can navigate your life without really being reminded of, of the trauma or of what you've lost. You can just take everything for what it is. Yeah, just that cumulative impact of grieving in tiny pieces. Again, those incremental pieces that um, when you put them all together, have a real positive impact in your life. 
you remind me of the expression, you know, all of a sudden you wake up one day and say, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it, it, <laughs> it, like, it, it's been enough, you know, I've, I've done the work. I'm ready to, to set it, not, not so much set it aside, but I'm ready to really metabolize and take that energy that's uh, new energy from what's been metabolized. I think that's one of the beauties actually of integration and working through our trauma and our grief incrementally. We are given new energy. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's funny to see the change in yourself from something that would have been it's such a trigger for you and you would have been really distraught if it happened, you know, years ago to the point where you can be like, well, that sucks. <laughs> Not really be right. impacted by it. Like a little bit of water off your back, right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. But not like um, putting in bed for three days. Exactly. It's the same, the same thing has happened. And, and in your head, it still probably falls in the same space of like, you know, this is not something I wanted or this is not the way that I wanted to do this particular thing. But you can just get on and do it anyway and, and enjoy it anyway, because you've had a chance to grieve what you thought your life would look like in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it comes up, doesn't it, at times when we were not planning for it, like you were at a family event or whatever it was, and you see your sister playing volleyball or just this little wave, this little hit. Um, and then over time, that little hit doesn't have carry as much punch. It is. It completely agree. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting is one of the people that I related most to in discussing this kind of trauma is actually a friend of mine who had lost her mother. So obviously very different trauma and and was sort of handled very differently by the world in terms of my experience being very outward facing and people could see it and hers not being that way. Mm-hmm. And I remember her saying one of the hardest things is that everything that's supposed to be happy is sad because she lost her mother and then got married. And then, you know, had to think about this sadness that she was experiencing, not having her mother there or then having children afterward and not having her mother there for that. And I think in a lot of ways, it's very much the same when you lose a physical capability and that you have to go through all of those little pieces. Like I won't be a mother in the way I can't have kids probably, or just as likely as anyone else. But I mean, I won't be a mother in the way that I imagined it. I won't chase my kids around in the way that I imagined. And so all of those happy things I think are infused with a little bit of loss and you have to learn how to handle that and how to move through those and still enjoy those things because they are really important parts of your life. Mm -hmm. Gosh, wisdom from Leanne Taylor, that whether it's physical loss or emotional, mental loss, loss of somebody very close to us, uh, trauma and grief are trauma and grief and they really bring the full coin, the coin even of joy that still has a little bit of tinge of sadness because something is missing and how it is that we move forward with that. Gosh, um, really wise. I'm sure many people will be able to resonate with that, Leanne. You know, I'm wondering with the storytelling aspects and with good, wise people whom you've surrounded your self-with friendship-wise, do you rely on a care team or a spiritual advisor or are there other things that you've done to help you cope with uh, the despair that you had have talked about that you experienced? Anything else that you do? 
When I was first injured, I saw a psychologist that was actually funding was provided from the Spinal Cord Injury Association for that, which I think is such a undervalued thing to do, but so important. And I think that the relationship that I built with him became really the foundation for how I would handle different things going forward. And then as an athlete, actually, uh, we have access to a sports psychologist who sort of it's interesting because I feel like some of that same work really continued over to looking at how different aspects of trauma had given me strength and also posed challenges for me in sport. Yeah. yeah. And especially as an athlete who was injured on a bike, I think obviously more things come up than when you talk about racing and trying to push that bike as fast as it will go again and wondering, you know, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. And I think having access to that kind of support has been really helpful for me to have someone to talk with about it and to work through it. And also someone who's coming at it from that professional standpoint of, of really the science that's out there on, on how to best navigate situations that are pretty challenging for anyone. Yeah. Psychologists, uh, mental health professionals, therapists can be so valuable and helpful when they have the trauma background. Uh, yeah, so, so true. You know, I'm just wondering as an athlete, I'm just going to take a stab at this as a, as a beautiful, very healthy looking athlete. What are your secrets for staying physically in shape? Are there particular foods that you uh, choose to ingest to stay away from? You do food supplements. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about even lifestyle choices with your diet. Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. For me, I think so much of, of your physical health comes from your mental health and, and the attitudes you have toward food and exercise. And as a younger person, I think I spent a lot of my life with really negative attitudes towards food and exercise and just wanting to be thin and look a certain way and going to the gym as punishment for eating cookies. Um, and then as an athlete, your perspective on that really changes and food really becomes a fuel for your sport. And so I think it really helped me in that way to, to start to see food in that way. And our, um, we have access to dietitians who give us a lot of guidance about food for athletes. And so their focus is very much on making sure that we have enough food and that we're fueled enough to do the training that we're doing. And I think for me, that kind of change in mentality in terms of how I see food made it easier for me to make healthy choices, but also have a ton of balance. Like we have a whole, uh, you can see it back here, other people can't, but we have a whole rack back here that was supposed to be a fruit stand, but is full of Halloween candy. And I eat it every day, <laughs> Not a ton of it, but a little bit. And I think uh, just coming at it from like, from almost a psychological point of view on looking at your relationship with food, I have found has been the most helpful way of balancing feeling good and feeling fit and kind of reaching your fitness goals in a way that feels positive and nice rather than punishing yourself for eating something. Yeah. Yeah. Food oftentimes can figure into what it is that we surround ourselves with for our mental health and physical health, certainly, um, especially as we are coping with trauma difficulties and also the joys of life. We have uh, coming up on the Trauma Healing Learning Series, an expert in plant-based uh, diets and just that relationship to inflammation in our bodies and clarity of thinking. And I just think of 
athletes, but any of us, right? We're all living, you know, fast-paced, busy lives where we also need and want to slow down and digestion is so key. And so it doesn't surprise me that you're making those, really those discerning choices for yourself as well. And they have mental impacts physical, which is what you just said, and physical impacts mental. So it's a real full circle. Yeah, just a lot to consider there. Well, I'm wondering now with your workplace that I have learned a lot about uh, up in, you know, we're in the States, you're in Canada. How is it that that diversity, equity and inclusion, and we also are recently adding accessibility, how has that really shown up for you and why has it become important for you? In Canada, we're a little bit unique legally in the sense that we don't have an aggressive legal equivalent of the ADA. So in the U.S., the Americans with Disabilities Act, I think that's right. It is. <laughs> requires, thank you, um, requires that businesses that are new are made to be accessible. And in Canada, that's not the case. And so you will more often find inaccessible workplaces and environments just because it's never come across their plate and they've never thought about it and they don't have to have it. So add it up. Right. <laughs> That's where they're at. No, no legal reason to have it either, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that never comes from a place of wanting to exclude. I think it genuinely just never crosses people's minds. And so I worked in an office before I was injured and a lot of our staff were quite young and I was quite young. And so accessibility probably just had never come across their mind. It wasn't something that they'd ever thought about, you know, hiring for myself working there at 26. They weren't thinking like, how do we make it accessible? They were just making it nice. And just as a footnote, you weren't thinking about it either. It's just a real blind spot for able-bodied people. We just don't think about that. Our homes, our workplaces, yeah, accessibility. It just never crosses your mind. And so when I was injured... One of the things that I thought was just such a kind gesture from my company is that after my injury, before I had really reached out to them about returning to work or like, you know, decided what that was going to look like, they installed the door opener buttons in my office, like in the bathroom and at the front of the office. Mm -hmm. And I feel like just this little gesture of welcome really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't realize how much that would resonate with people with disabilities if they did these little things to say like, hey, we welcome you here. Yeah, just that door opener. That that might require a new, different kind of door and some electrical uh, input and uh, an electrician, et cetera. But just that gesture of what it means to one person in the workplace, let alone others. So kudos, shout out to your employer (laughs) for doing that um, and to you for making an impact in that workplace. Have you found that you have brought that awareness to others or has it been in the same workplace where you've been that that has occurred? In the workplace, I noticed that during the pandemic with more communication being done on Zoom, I think I always find myself in a really awkward place of feeling like I was almost lying to someone if they didn't know I was a wheelchair user, but it wasn't relevant to my job. But it was weird when they subsequently found out and then they didn't know this significant thing about me. 
And so I had a series of interactions where, you know, we'd known each other virtually for the year of the pandemic. And then at some point, maybe they came across an article about my athletic pursuits and were like, what? (laughs) I didn't know this at all. And so I think that is sort of a unique aspect of our more digital world, which is amazing for people with disabilities in the sense that I think it opens up employment opportunities, but also strange in the sense that they have to kind of make that decision as to how they present or how they bring that up or whether they bring that up or whether it matters and kind of just more questions as well that we all have to consider in the workplace. Yeah, it's so interesting. A couple of of levels that those who have something they might want to talk about, like a disability or you being in a wheelchair, you want to be able to talk about that or maybe you want others to be able to know that as well. And yet we're so clamped by laws and what is not appropriate and for good reasons, but we're coming to a time in society where we might lead in a different way. And I suppose it will be you and those with disabilities, living with disabilities, um, opening up to be able to speak about that. I know I've witnessed the relief that can come from that because people genuinely care. And I've also been really amazed at the movement that's been around for quite some time. Many of us would say we've been aware and teaching this for quite some time, but to now really call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it didn't include accessibility. I mean, that was a blind spot too. (laughs) You know, what a profound observation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think as we start to pull in different aspects of of what's important to us in the workplace, I think it's funny to start to consider those different things that we get more comfortable with all kinds of different people in the workplace. But I do feel like sometimes the disabled community is not considered in that kind of melting pot when we think about unique requirements and diverse people. And so for sure, I think inserting ourselves into that conversation as much as we can is is kind of something that I would like to see because I think representation of all kinds of people in the workplace is the way that we build the most successful and happy workplaces. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I mean, based on your experiences and those wise insights, how how might you put forth um, something, one or two things that organizations could do to foster a more inclusive environment? I think that the reason that people shy away from employing people with disabilities is because people feel like they have to have all the answers. So the employer feels like, I don't know how to make this job or this place accessible for this person. And because I don't know, I can't do it. Mm. And I think we don't very often realize that the simplest solution is the right one that we can just ask people. And so I found that anytime that someone approaches me and says, hey, we want this to work for you, but we don't know how. I always appreciate that so much because I think it's really hard to do. But I think that's really how we can progress forward is learning from real people who exist in our world. And and there's tons of them. Yeah, tons of them. And that vulnerability, I think you're extending an invitation to organizations to say, be vulnerable. I say that you don't know. And that, you know, the law says you don't have to have all the answers, (laughs) right? It says that you need to accommodate. So we don't, we don't know. Tell us how you can be accommodated. How can we make this work? How lovely is is that? 
I do know that there, I've witnessed it as a mediator, there can be those disabled who can be frustrated with that. Why do I have to be the one to come up with all the answers and the solutions? And I am aware of the other side of that as well. Yeah, you're nodding your head. Um, you might give that some illumination for us too, if you resonate with that. Looks like you did. Yeah, I I do. And I, I completely understand that point of view. And I think it's always gonna, going to be present. I wish we lived in a world where I didn't have to explain my capabilities to people or where where my disability, frankly, wasn't interesting, where it was just so normal and run-of-the-mill that no one really cared and they knew what to do and we just all moved on. I want to be in that place, but I don't think we can be in that place without being willing to teach. And it's frustrating and it's an unfortunate burden that I feel like is put on people with disabilities in some ways that they that they're sort of forced to teach. Mm. Um like an example being, you know, little kids ask me weird questions about my wheelchair all the time. And it's super cute when it's little kids, but I think sometimes adults ask these questions as well. And it is a challenge or an additional sort of responsibility every time you go into the world of having to be able to, feeling like you have to sort of educate or offer answers to these questions. And and it is, it's frustrating and it does sort of put a drain on a person But I think at the end of the day, we can't get to where we're trying to go Mm. unless everyone puts in some work. And and sometimes that does fall on the people with disabilities. So for myself, I completely agree. It's frustrating to have to do it, but I would rather do it for the next person than stay where we are. Mm. Yeah, a little bit of self-sacrifice for the good of the order and good of what's possible for all of us in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the challenge is we have to start where we're at and it's not where we want to be. And so someone has to advocate for those changes. And in some circumstances, I'm happy to do it. And in other circumstances, I think I've relied on other people who've done it before me. Mm-hmm. Yes, all of us, right? We're oftentimes on the shoulders of giants or on the, I think that as the expression goes, right? We're walking in in the shoes of people with big, big feet before us. But we all have a voice. And that, in some ways, unstoppable voice, even though it can be tiring and exhausting and frustrating, as you've mentioned, how important it is for human development that we keep showing up to educate and explain. So thank you, Leanne, for continuing to do that. Appreciate that. You know, there's something I would really love to talk with you about before we close. And that is something that you've written about around body image and self-love and that they're important topics that you champion as well. And I'm wondering about your own journey uh, towards self-acceptance. How did that evolve? Did it change once you were injured in 2018? What does that look like? And what does what did it look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And a really important one, I think. For myself, before I was injured, I think everyone has a thing that they like to beat themselves up over. And before I was injured, I just was not happy with the size of my thighs. They were too big, in my opinion. I didn't like them. It was just this thing that bugged me. And I remember at some point after a spinal cord injury, you experience a lot of atrophy and lose a lot of muscle. And so the size of your legs really changes. And I remember 
one distinct point kind of realizing that and buying smaller pants and thinking like, how insane is it that this used to be a source of upset for me? Mm. How ridiculous that I used to be upset that my, you know, functional strong legs didn't look the way that someone else told me they should. Mm -hmm. And so after my injury, I think in some ways it helps having a unique body because those beauty standards don't apply to you anymore. And in some ways, I think it was just such a relief to say like, I'm not one of those girls. I don't have to look like them. It's fine. Wow. I don't have to struggle with that body image, (laughs) right? Trying to compare on the example somebody else has implanted. Exactly, exactly. And so it makes me kind of hope that without having to go through the experience of of acquiring a disability, that other people can kind of do that as well, can say like, I don't have to adhere to that. No one is making me. And really make that conscious effort to throw away those standards. Because I think the only way that you feel you have to adhere to them is by choosing that for yourself. And so after my injury, I think I've just tried really hard to continue in that pathway of saying like, that is not a model for what I need to look like, Um, what anyone else looks like or what anyone else says I should look like. And always just kind of having that appreciation for what my body can do rather than worrying about how it looks doing it. Hmm. I'm just struck by the paradox of being spinal cord injured and the freedom that it has given to you, this pause time about your life and then this body image piece to really turn that on its head and and see this beautiful woman um, without these external societal standards that somehow got ingested and imprinted, just um, a freedom. And you are living as a free woman who you are. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah, I think it's a unique experience to to have all of these kind of not everything about it is positive, but have a lot of sort of positive realizations after my injury. But I think that a lot of the time we don't take that time to consider what am I doing? Why do I think what I think? And from being a very busy and active person to to sitting in a hospital with a lot of time to think about a lot of things, it gave me some opportunities to look at, at aspects like that of my life and, and make choices that I think ultimately have made me more happy mm-hmm. and content. Yeah. The silver lining of these uh, catastrophic events in our lives that, you know, I think of blink of an eye, right? We have these blink of an eye. You have had a blink of an eye experience. And we also can have our lives changed in the blink of an eye in the positive. Just like who would have thunk it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in a quantum second kind of thing. Well, I know we're going to close soon. And you have big plans. You've got your site set on Paris on a big, what would you call it? It's not a Tour de France. What is it called? Triathlon. It is the paratriathlon. Okay. So you're going to do that in 2024. And we wish you the best. And I am just so curious about the plans that you're making to get there, your flight, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal for those with spinal cord injuries to fly around one country or another, not to mention overseas. What's that been like for you to plan or have you not um, yet gotten there? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a good question. We do travel a lot for the sport. Um, we were in Paris actually doing the test event for the Paralympics this past summer. So we actually got to go there and do the race course, which was amazing. 
And for sure, I think there's an additional layer of challenge for people with spinal cord injuries trying to access these different venues, whether it's from things like the flight itself or, you know, we swim open water. So some there's a beach or there's a river, like we have to get there. And I think that's a big reach for a lot of people uh, in the parasport community is just getting there as a challenge. And so for sure, that's something we had to learn in the beginning and that was intimidating in the beginning. And then as you start to put all the pieces together, it just, it becomes normal. And then you, when you're reminded, you think of it again, but, but now when people talk about us going to Paris, it's not something that I think about. Yeah. Right. Good, good for you. I know for others who are high on the spine with their injury, uh, they're still not able to do much uh, traveling with airplanes. But Delta came out with the prototype this past spring, spring 2023. So we're all looking forward to that for our spinal cord injured community who are living their lives in power chairs. So I'm really wishing you well, though, with those travels, because I know they can be quite arduous and hard on the body. I think that definitely is a hole in the system right now that there isn't a really good solution for people in power chairs. And I think continuing to push that and continuing to, if you can, travel as a disabled person and force people to think about this as they offer solutions to real people, I think is important. And and the more we continue to ask that question, I would love to see a great solution because I don't think anybody should be limited from seeing the world because of the accessibility of a plane. Yeah, it's an, it's another aspect of accessibility for those who are disabled for certain and then for, for anybody, right? How can I get access to go experience my life uh, here and there? Really beautiful. Well, I know you have received a great deal of support in your life. And I know with this triathlon para, a triathlon coming up, that you'll be crossing that finish line and you'll be thanking those who have supported you because you are well known for that gratitude. And I'm just wondering if you'd like to leave us with one of those heartwarming stories. Everybody loves the Leanne Taylor heartwarming stories. And if you'd share one with us about those who've supported you crossing that finish line, you've crossed it, you've crossed a number of them, Leanne. Sure. Yeah. I think one of the proudest people when I finished my race in Paris will actually be my swim coach who I started working with really early on in my swimming kind of career. And I was just bad. Now that I look back at it, I can appreciate that I just was bad. And I think the amount of patience and diligence that it took for him to work with me as a swimmer and then really develop me into a person who feels strong in the water and people comment on on my technique all the time, which I think makes him feel really good. And then recently, my swim coach is a very sort of humble and kind of understated person. And so he we don't have a lot of these big conversations about the games or we didn't until this year and kind of the big picture. But I looked at his phone one time a year ago and he had the Eiffel Tower as his phone background oh, two years out from the games. Wow. And so just seeing that someone else gets their motivation every day from this goal that is my goal, I think was so so touching that it matters to someone else that much. And I think for sure, when I cross the line in Paris, he will be one of the proudest people at the race. Mm, It's so beautiful. And once again, that theme of how others impact you because you are impacting others, uh, that relational reciprocity is so powerful. Yes, it really is. To the Eiffel Tower, 
to Paris and to whatever that technique is when you swim. I'm kind of I'm kind of imagining it. <laughs> How is it that you move the lower part of your body when you're swimming or do you? Uh, I don't. So we are allowed in paratriathlon, we're allowed to wear um, wetsuit pants and a leg brace to kind of keep our lower part of our body nice and straight. But it's really we're, we're pulling it through the water. So it's a matter of kind of having the strength and the and the good technique to move yourself, your lower body through the water as smoothly as you can, kind of using what ab function you have to to make it as smooth as possible. It is kind of a mess at first and you have to kind of work on it. It's a big adaptation for sure, but eventually it can look fairly smooth. Wow. I'm picturing kind of a sidewinder, kind of mo- mo- <laughs> moving the body, you know, to keep it a to keep it afloat and just all that dedication. And thank you, Coach. Um, and, and thank you, Leanne. It has been such a pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, whether it's a word of wisdom or a next step for you, anything, as it's been such a joy to speak with you today? I think something that's kind of important to me when people look at a podcast like this or consider people with disabilities and kind of the discussions that we've had, I think it's just important to realize that we are all more similar than we are different. And so people might look at the story and think, I couldn't do that, but I don't think that's true. I think that humans all have this fight in them that comes out at different times when it needs to. And I think humans all struggle in in some of really similar ways. So I think when we look at people with disabilities and kind of imagine that their lives are so different or that their existence is so different, I think we should kind of try to look through that lens of we are all more similar than we are different. Yeah, unique and united. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Leanne's resilience in the face of adversity teaches us the transformative power of determination. But that raw determination by itself is not enough for the longer journey of living fully. Her ability to not just survive, but thrive despite life's unforeseen challenges invites us all to explore a multifaceted response to adversity to define our trajectory of a meaningful life after any trauma and after spinal cord injury. Her journey also serves as a testament to the human spirit's incredible capacity for adaptation. Leanne's decision to embrace a new path, one that demanded courage, patience, and unyielding perseverance, underscores the strength found within each of us when we confront change with open arms. Moreover, her advocacy for diversity, inclusion, and equal opportunities expands the pie for employers as she invites those who are disabled to initiate the conversation with employers of which accommodations make a difference and what they might look like beyond legal mandates and in spite of legal mandates. Leanne's efforts encourage all of us to create spaces for dialogue where everyone feels valued, empowered, and respected for their unique contributions. Perhaps the most profound lesson lies in Leanne's advocacy for self-love and acceptance. Her journey towards embracing her disability inspires us 
to celebrate our own individuality, recognizing that through our life adversities, leaving us disabled, we might just be set free. Stay tuned for more incredible stories and insights on spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in future episodes in the Dear Louise series of our podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.